0: And answers. Most of the information we encounter is intended to impact our view of the truth, what we think about politics, economics, relationships, needs, and wants. Its purpose is to reshape your current view of reality into a different view that someone else is promoting. This reshaping may be good or bad depending upon the validity and implications of the revised view. One response to this deluge of information is to despair over discerning the truth. After all, what standard can I use to compare competing truth claims? If one medical doctor promotes eating fish daily and another doctor says it's dangerous due to high mercury levels, how can I discern the truth? Is there really truth in the media? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zukran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. In today's episode of Evidence and Answers, we will hear a study by Kirby Anderson, president of Probe Ministries, as he shared at our recent Hawaii Apologetics conference. Now with part two of this exciting message is Kirby Anderson
1: the likelihood of being involved in a violent crime, percentage of Americans in white-collar occupations, your comparative Americans compared to the rest of the world, if those are skewed, is it possible that other things that are more difficult to quantify, materialism, sexuality, and other things, those would be skewed as well? And what they found is that heavy TV viewers live in an unreal world. If you're paying attention, you know I haven't mentioned something. How many people fit into that category of heavy TV viewers? Half of America. Amazing. So it affects your perception of the world. Does it affect your behavior? Yes, it does. Let's look at this real quickly. A couple studies. first one comes from the Journal of Pediatrics. The American Association of Pediatricians a number of years ago published a study showing a very definite correlation. Correlation doesn't always show causation, but in this case, I think it does. But they found that young people who see lots of sex on television and a lot of sexual images on television are more likely to be involved sexually than those who see less sex on television or don't have a television set in the home at all. Matter of fact, they've done a follow-up study showing that young girls who have seen lots of sexual images on television are more likely to also be pregnant than those who have seen less. So that's sex, how about violence? This study came out a couple of years before, and actually it's what's called a meta-study. It combined together about a thousand different studies, including three studies by three different surgeon generals under three different administrations, Clinton, Bush, and Obama. And they all concluded, again, that there was a causal correlation and connection between media and then well, violent media in particular and aggressive behavior in some children. Now, they had to put the weasel words in there because they didn't want to say that just because you see violence, you're going to be the next axe murderer, serial killer. But the point is, is again, very definite correlation. Does that make sense? What you see read, and here does affect your worldview and it affects your behavior. The Proverbs say, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he, right? So it would make sense that that would be the case. Well, before we run out of time, and I took out a few slides so that might leave enough time for some questions at the end. We also have done a lot of studies lately on how the media affects your brain. And so if you allow me to kind of conduct a neurophysiology class for a few minutes, I won't get too technical here. We'll start with some fun things, but we have learned a lot more about how media affects your brain. The first really comes from a study that was started by just an offhanded comment made by Nicholas Carr in Atlantic Monthly. A little bit later I'm going to talk about his book. But I'll start with where that conversation began many years ago. And that is seven years ago, he began to ask the question, what is the internet doing to my brain? Here's how he put it. He said, over the past few years, I've had an uncomfortable sense that someone or something has been tinkering with my brain remapping the neural circuitry, reprogramming the memory, now my concentration often starts to drift after two or three pages. He said, immersing myself in a book or a lengthy article used to be easy. My mind would get caught up in the narrative or the turns of the argument. Now my concentration often starts to drift after two or three pages. Some of you that can remember when you used to read a book and you would be reading and all of a sudden hours had gone by and you couldn't believe it. And now you're saying, it's really hard for me to even stay in a section of anything I'm reading for more than a few minutes. And he began to say, we always think that our brain is affecting our world, but is the world, and in particular the media, affecting our brain? Here's another one. Stephen Kotler in Psychology Today said, constantly using Twitter is reducing the time of concentration to a few dozen words. He says, Twitter will tune the brain to reading and comprehending information at 140 characters at a time. Now, I know some of you are in the ministry here. Just think about this for a minute. Can I communicate the gospel in 140 characters? Don't think so. There's a book that came out a number of years ago, and they had short chapters, and somebody asked him, why is it that you have these short chapters? And he said, because I think that... A typical person in America, because of television, can only concentrate for eight minutes and it takes about eight minutes to read this section of chapter. They said, "Why eight minutes because the typical television program has eight minutes then a commercial, eight minutes then a commercial, and so already Decades ago, we were recognizing that people were getting their brains tuned to about eight minutes. If indeed that's the case, that means that you've tuned me out and tuned me in two or three times just in the time I've been up here. Is that right? I'll be honest. They have probably the case. But imagine 140 characters. You know, pastors, lots of luck. If that's the next generation trying to communicate this in 140 characters, we have a big challenge. And the reason for this is is what we call, this is a big word, you can impress your friends, neuroplasticity. That is, the brain is a lot more plastic than we thought that it was. We're not only, as one researcher said, what we read, we are how we read. The internet today puts emphasis on efficiency and immediacy. You watch a young person with a computer or cell phone, and they're jumping back and forth. They're following all sorts of links here, and we're expecting them to follow a logical, sustained kind of presentation of the gospel, a logical presentation of the epistles. Think about that. It's a real challenge in the 21st century. The brain has the ability to reprogram itself on the fly, altering its way it functions. It's not only true for young people, it's true for the grandparents in this room as well. There's a principle of neuroplasticity, use it or lose it. That is, if you are using that in following various neural pathways, then those light up, those connections between your brain light up, and you are using them more effectively. But if you don't use others, they sort of fade away, and they drop off. And so the brain can reprogram itself literally on the fly. And a lot of people are saying, this is going to have an impact in the next generation. The book I mentioned is Nicholas Carr's book, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brain, called The Shallows. And we recognize that the brain is plastic, and that's a good thing. If you've ever had a stroke or you know somebody's had a stroke, Uh, we can think of uh, Gabrielle Giffords who was shot in Phoenix. Now they're training parts of her brain to take over functions that other part of her brain no longer can function. There's some really positive aspects of neuroplasticity. But the downside is, is that the technology may be reprogramming our brains as well. And just the if, focus on logical, linear thought, on attention, on discernment, may be very important issues to address. And so we recognize the value of that, of altering our neural pathways and how God has used those brains. But of course, there are some really significant challenges. Let's mention a few real quickly. In your handout, you notice I put the word smartphone there. Let's look at a couple of the C's and see how the smartphone seems to be changing the way our brains are functioning. The first is the issue of concentration. That is, it's what's called distraction overload. That is, if your cell phone goes off, mine's on silent, for a lot of reasons. One, because I'm a talk show host and I don't want it going off in the studio, but also just because I don't want the distraction. But if you're concentrating and all of a sudden it buzzes or it beeps or rattles or rings or whatever, then you answer it, look at it, then you you get this, where was I brain lock problem. Now I'm just old enough now, sometimes I walk into a room and I go, why did I walk into this room? You know, are you old enough to remember some of that? But we're talking about something much more than that. If it comes at a logical point, The distraction isn't so devastating. But if it comes at a time where it interrupts, you can sometimes forget exactly what you're doing. They have now linked some of these plane crashes to individuals being distracted at times when they were going through their checklist and missing some of their checklists. There are some really devastating stories about how this is affecting our concentration. And that's something to really pay attention. And again, I think a wise and discerning Christian might say, I want to control my smartphone. I don't want my smartphone to control me. Does that make sense? Some people will say, oh, it really doesn't matter. I can be doing my smartphone while I'm paying attention. You know, I'll be uh, looking up a Bible verse while the pastor's preaching, but I'll also be jumping over some other things, but I'll still be paying attention And because, after all, I can multitask. No, you can't. We now have done enough brain studies to know that there is no such thing as multitasking. It's what you might call rapid-fire, continuous partial attention. Whatever you're focused on, the other thing you think you're multitasking for drops precipitously by at least 40%. That's why in many states today, they do not allow you to use your smartphone while you're driving. Or if you do, you will be penalized dramatically. And I haven't known as many people, seen so many people using it here, But in the state of Texas, kind of, you know... The Wild West, I've seen people driving with their knee, doing their smartphone and doing their hair at the same time. And that means when I see one of those people, I give them a wide berth because it's very likely that they're headed for an accident of some sort. But that's the issue of concentration. The other C is what? Creativity. Whether you look at the Christian world, when he was alive, Howard Hendricks at Dallas Theological Seminary used to teach a course on creativity and lament that we are seeing a decrease in amount of creativity, or whether you go into the secular world, I don't know how many of you like to watch TED Talks, but a lot of them are talking about the tremendous drop in creativity today. It has to do with large part of a number of things, but one of those is because of things like the smartphone and the Internet, we have no think time, no daydreaming time. A number of years ago, I taught a Bible study, and everybody in the Bible study was either in the arts or in advertising. Had a lot of advertisers in there. And almost to a person, they said some of the most creative things they ever came up with were when they were having downtime. When they were in the shower, when the man maybe was shaving, when a woman's putting on makeup, when they had some downtime. But there's not a lot of downtime left anymore, is there? Because people are always checking on their smartphones. There's, this is the time when your brain brings all those creative ideas together. And so as a result, there's no think time. There's no daydreaming because of these. So we're starting to see some of the possible implications that that can have as well. Let me take on one other issue, and I know this is controversial, but I mentioned George Barnum years ago. George Barnum wrote an article about media addiction. I said, yeah, right, everything's an addiction. You're getting tired of this, you know, everything's an addiction. But, you know, as I began to read the article, I said, you know, he was saying here are the signs that are actually listed by the American Psychiatric Association to illustrate whether somebody's addicted. And then here is what we find with people using the media." And I said, you know, you've convinced me we are struggling with a problem of media addiction. One anecdote I can use is one of our staff members at Pro Ministries is also a professor at the University of Texas at Dallas, and he is getting his PhD. He already has one PhD in theology, but he's getting another one in the history of ideas on technology. So he teaches the class on technology. One of the requirements of the class on technology is you have to go undergo a technological fast. To do that, you have to hand your smartphone to him, and he keeps it for 24 hours. There are students in the class that are willing to take a zero on that because they cannot bear to be away from their smartphone for 24 hours. You with me on this? That sounds like a media addiction, doesn't it? We've got a problem that needs to be addressed. A matter of fact, it's interesting. You know, we, we have parents today that talk about their kids addicted to video games and things like that, and yet he points out that you know, three-fourths say that exposure of their children to inappropriate content is one of their top concerns. Yeah, think about it. Until a child is 16 years of age, you're the one driving them to the movie theater, watching a movie they shouldn't watch. You're the one driving them to a video game store, letting them buy a video game that you don't want in your home. Think about that for just a minute. On the one hand, parents say, we're really concerned about media addiction, but on the other hand, they are the what? The enablers of the addiction in the first place. Just about out of time, so let me focus real quickly on worldviews. Pat and last night talked about worldviews, and what kind of worldviews are we getting in the media? I think a wise and discerning Christian should say, well, I need to look at those things and I need to evaluate them. And if you think I'm against media, I live in the world of media. I do radio, you can watch me on television, I'm going to and have been encouraging you to go to websites, but the point is, a wise and discerning Christian is going to be at least evaluating the uh, content, the exposure to media, the quantity as well as the quality of that media input. What kind of worldviews do we run into? Well, first of all, in this, to look at some of the worldviews uh, for media. By the way, that stuff on the news is in the article that's in your articles. You can read all of that, so I'm going to skip that, but you can read all about the studies that were done by uh, a number of individuals. But the first is we run into a naturalistic or atheistic worldview. Pat was just speaking on the New Atheist, and he probably talked about, in the upper left-hand corner, Richard Dawkins. Lower left-hand corner, when he was alive, Christopher Hitchens. Upper right-hand corner, Peter Singer at Princeton University. Lower right-hand corner, Bill Maher. And you run into those. And again, as Christians, we need to recognize that we're getting a heavy dose of an atheistic or naturalistic worldview sometimes when we turn on a television set, when we go to the movies, we open up a magazine, we look at a newspaper, we read books, and we need to be evaluating those worldviews. Another set, certainly some of the things that speakers have been speaking, to the whole idea of pantheism Yoda right you know again we have another Star Wars coming out here lower left-hand corner Sheryl McLean. upper right-hand corner Deepak Chopra lower right-hand corner Dalai Lama and again the idea of the New Age and pantheism and Eastern ideas what about the occult and Gnosticism and some of the best-selling books are talking about spirituality but they're not biblical spirituality they're secular a kind of spirituality, or even the sensuality. I had to work real hard to find pictures of these women that wouldn't turn any of us into a pillar of salt. You know what I'm talking about? But again, the kind of things that we are addressing here today are certainly of concerns as well. So what I think we can see is, is that we have all sorts of concerns, and you see even some of the objections, because I've had some people actually object and say, well, you know, that's just reality. Well, Yeah. But 18,000 televised homicides, 200,000 acts of violence by the time you graduate from high school, it's not really reality. Hey, it's just killing time. You know, and I live in the real world. There are times when sometimes you might just want to say, you know, I'm ready to just kind of veg out, just watch a TV show or go to a website or go to a movie. and I don't have to think deeply about every area of life. Hey, some people say, hey, nobody will know. I can go to any kind of website I want and nobody will know. Well, first of all, it leaves all sorts of electronic footprints. You know, I've had mothers every once in a while say, can you look at my son's computer? I'm wondering if he's looking at things he shouldn't be looking at. And since I put myself the graduate school programming computers, I'm pretty good at finding these electronic footprints. Always have found them. But you know, you might fool some of the people some of the time. You might even fool all the people all the time, but you're not going to fool God, right? Hey. And so I think the point I'm making is, is that what we need to do as believers is begin to recognize that we are living in the midst of a media storm. Our children and grandchildren are in the midst of a media storm. And I've got whole sections that I left out just because I wanted to give you time to ask a question or two on, you know, rules for Facebook, rules for television. You can find some of the material that's in that article, but you can go to probe.org and find things on television and movies and film and all sorts of things. And helpful ideas and suggestions. But the bottom line is, is you have to say, maybe I need to reevaluate the location of my television set. Maybe I need to turn off the TV set a little bit more. Maybe I need to be a little more wise about what movies I go to. And most importantly, these little smartphones, it's really kind of changing the way we think. And so I think there's some real value in beginning to exercise discernment. So I've left a few minutes for you to ask some questions so that you probably have some comment or question about media. So let me, if I can, see if I can begin to respond to any questions you might have. I think so, you know, and again, what I'm trying to do is, yeah, and I'll restate the question is exactly that, and that is one of the ways that would be helpful if you're really talking to your kids, your grandkids, is to give them some of the facts and figures, and I think that is a very good point. That's why I tried to give you a few. I've had mothers say, I've always known there was something wrong, but now you've given me some good intellectual ammunition, and so that is helpful, and it's a good way to begin to, first of all, have all of us evaluate what we read, see, and hear. I'm hoping that, and I know I have a number of pastors here, I hope that some of the pastors might say, hmm, there is somewhere along the line, maybe we're in Philippians and we talk about Philippians 4.8 or maybe we're going to just talk about uh, the need for us to really begin to exercise some discernment. And one of the ways in which I give you some very arresting facts are some things to share with first us, but then with our children. And I think, first of all, we have to be a good role model. That's part of it right there. I've had more than one mother say, you know, if I could get my husband to turn off the television set, I'm sure I could get my kids to stop watching so much TV. You know, and I'm from the Irma Bombeck school. She used to say that any man that watches four consecutive football games could be declared legally dead, okay? So, I'm, you know, I'm with you on the fact that guys sometimes watch entirely too many games, sports, whatever. So, you know, that's part of it. And recognizing that half of America is in that heavy viewer category tells me that, first of all, we need to set some examples. But I've given you some facts and figures that help you maybe talk to your teenage son or your grade school daughter and say, you know, we need to really rethink some of these issues and really begin to make a covenant with our eyes. The Scriptures talk about that. So I'm giving you some facts and figures and some numbers and encouraging you to look up a little bit more so that you have a little bit of a better understanding on how to maybe change what you read, see, and hear. And if that's the case, I've certainly fulfilled my function. Yes, the question is, how do we make the media accountable without, obviously, violating constitutional rights? Well, first of all, most of the things we've talked about here, let's talk about television for just a minute, are funded by advertisers. And even if Hollywood doesn't listen, The advertisers do listen. And even if they don't see the light, they feel the heat. And I can tell you that there have been very successful letter-writing campaigns brought about by groups like American Family Association and others that have made a real significant difference. Also, Hollywood itself, and not all of television comes from Hollywood, a lot of it comes from Hollywood, Burbank, Beverly Hills, some comes from New York City, is becoming more sensitive to some of those issues that you were talking about. And you also have a fair number of Christians that are working in the media. I left a lot of that out, and you can read that in the article that we've included there. And you'll find that you know, it's not like you're necessarily fighting people who disagree with you. In some cases, there are people that also have a little bit of a hesitation about what's being taking place. So I think there are some positive things that we can do in terms of letter-writing campaigns. In some cases, there have been boycotts and the rest. Hollywood's getting the message that we want more family-friendly films. As a matter of fact, you can go to the website for Ted Bear, which is the Christian Television and Film Commission, which also produces Movie Guide, which I think is wonderful. By the way, sometimes you know how you go into a movie and you go, I didn't know it was going to be in that movie. Well, you can read in Movie Guide, for example, all the possible concerns about a film before you go into the movie theater. Because the ratings mean nothing anymore. PG could mean pretty good or it could mean pretty gross, right? So, you know, there's really no way that the rating system helps you. So uh, those can tell you. But again, Ted Bear will tell you that he's working more and more with Christians that are recognizing that, first of all, it's the PG and PG-13 films that make most of the money. And the ones that lose a lot of money are the R-rated films. So you say, well, why would Hollywood do those? Well, because they want to get the pats on their back for being edgy and everything. But the bottom line is they recognize that positive and sometimes faith-upholding kind of films are doing a whole lot better than the ones that are violent and sensual and the rest. So I think we just need to keep our pressure on, but also recognize that even if they produce junk, doesn't mean I let it in the home. And so I think we just need to make some wise decisions about that. Oh, very good. What are my personal views on scripture memory? And, and, I, matter of fact, one of the verses I had taken out here was, you know, on taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Second Corinthians ten, verses three through five. And I think it's really important to recognize that he says we are tearing down strongholds and lofty thoughts raised up against the knowledge of God, and we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And it seems to me that scripture memory a very effective way to doing that, and really making sure that you spend time in God's Word. Cal Thomas is a good friend. He writes newspaper columns. I write newspaper. Paper columns. And he has this line that he uses every once in a while. Every day I read the Bible and the New York Times to see what both sides are up to, you know. And there's a sense in which, you know, if we spend a little more time in God's Word and a little less time in reading whatever newspaper, uh, I'll pick on the New York Times because, you know, that's just kind of the one he used. It's very important. And spending time in God's Word, meditating on Scripture, memorizing Scripture, very important. And that's the sad reality. I mentioned just a minute ago we used to do Between Rock and a Hard Place. One of the things we would do is we put those verses from the songs up on the board, and they hadn't paid attention to it. But one of the other things we would do is we would start a commercial. We deserve a break today. We do it all for you. And the kids were filling up every single one of those cliches. Then we'd start a Bible verse, crickets. We'd start another Bible verse, silence. And we've made it very clear that they knew all the jingles for the commercials a lot better than they knew God's Word. And if that shouldn't be convicting enough, I don't know what else is.
0: Well, we've run out of time, but this concludes Part 2 of Kirby Anderson's study on the truth in the media, taken from our recent Hawaii Apologetics Conference. If you found this broadcast to be a blessing, please consider partnering with us. Evidence & Answers relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. Log on to our website at evidenceandanswers.org. We have a wide variety of resources available to you. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, click on the Donate button on the lower right-hand side of our homepage. Evidence & Answers is so grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions for more than 20 years. To learn more, visit their website at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online for more evidence and answers.